welcome to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Graham Nye and Chris Dominic. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jason. Ever heard of a triple threat? Sure. Like a baller who can pass, shoot, and dribble? Or a rugby player who can catch, pass, and kick? Or that annoying guy at the party who can sing, dance, and be vulnerable? Sure, whatever. Anyway, Meal Pass is the lab's newest sponsor, and they are a serious triple threat. So it can sing and dance and be vulnerable? Boy, no. Meal Pass elegantly solves the three most serious problems facing America today. Our singing and dancing deficiencies. (laughs) Oh, my God. No. Enough. No singing, no dancing. What I'm talking about is a company that can help feed America's 50 million food insecure citizens, put money into the pockets of the country's 1 million restaurants who are trying to recover from the pandemic and reduce food waste. Whoa, tell me more. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Meal Pass is a technology platform developed here in Australia. It gives restaurants a platform to list any end-of-day meals they'd otherwise throw away. Those in need access a code from a charity food partner. They fire up the app, choose a meal from a restaurant in their area and go and collect it. In doing so, the restaurant qualifies for lucrative but hard to access tax deductions and they reduce their food waste. That really is a triple threat. Providing money to restaurants, offering food to the hungry, and reducing GHG by reducing food waste. That's right. In a three-month pilot, mid-pandemic here in Australia, 500 restaurants signed up, including 7-Eleven and Subway. 55,000 meals were served and 100,000 pounds of landfill-bound food waste was rescued. That's phenomenal. Am I right? Yeah. So, when I'm not being a scintillating podcast host with you, I'm helping Meal Pass launch in the US. We've onboarded our first restaurants and served our first meals to those in need. It's so exciting to see it launch. How can our listeners learn more or help? They can head to mealpass.org to learn more. They can also help us by introducing us to any restaurants in their area that would want to sign up and start earning tax deductions. We're also looking to build our team. So if anyone would like to join us on our mission, we have really cool sales roles on offer. It's a really simple sell. Trust me. That's a way better triple threat than my singing dancing one. I'm not even sure that was ever in question. Mill Pass, radical generosity done profitably. Today, we're reconnecting with a former guest of our show. He was the guest on one of our most listened to episodes, episode eight, Why People Believe in Conspiracy Theories. Retired clinical psychologist and trial consultant, Doug Keen. Doug, how are you? Wonderful. Great to be back. That's so good. How is everything with you in Asheville, North Carolina? I'm living in paradise, man. It is just heavenly. Awesome. Can we walk through the last game of golf you played? What did you score? What was the highlight? And what's something you want to do again differently? <laughs> was it the short game? I'm a- yeah. Well, starting out with your first question, can we talk about it? The answer is no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> you know, it's just too negative. We got to be more positive. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. So uh, uh, more serious endeavors then. How's the vaccine schedule with you? Second shot was a month and a half ago. Okay. Yes. You're you're bulletproof. Ouch. Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, Saturday, we're going to the beach for a week. Mm. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. How about in any chance you have any plans to see your kids or have you seen your kids? There are certainly plans. They say we're coming. I, we keep saying don't come. Uh, no, I, really, the kids are the kids are doing <laughs> great. They're, they're kind of behind our schedule with regard to the vaccination. So as soon as they get clear of that, we're going to figure out a way. Yeah, yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, okay, good. Yeah, I know last time we got together, you're like, oh, man, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a year and a 
a half since, well, uh, it was Christmas of uh, 2019 when we saw him last. Well, hey, I thought of you the other day while I was reading this survey by the Centers for Disease Control. Right. Nearly 41% of Americans report struggling with mental health or substance abuse. To me, that was kind of nuts. With 31% reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression, 26% reporting trauma or stressor-related disorder related to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're like wartime numbers, right? I, I, I think that's fascinating, along with the fact that more than half the country has its first dose of the vaccine. I mean, looking at the numbers, I just don't see us flipping the switch back right away or maybe ever. I just, what's your take? In terms of the anxiety and depression, I think it's pretty understandable. Mm-hmm. You know, when we take a look at the frequency of, of mental health concerns and mental health issues, anxiety and depression are always the two that are at the top of the chart. So in a sense, it's it's sort of an exacerbation of the pattern that society is, has seen for a very long time. And so from that standpoint, I think some of the some of the solutions to it are probably going to be the same kinds of solutions that uh, therapists and mental health professionals have have been employing for a long time to help people get used to uh, a circumstance that they find very uncomfortable or, or troubling. Mm-hmm. By and large, what we're talking about is when you are caught in a situation where you feel like the world is unfamiliar, life has become unfamiliar to you. And that's, I think, what really people are struggling with here. It's not that wearing a, a mask is inherently troubling or, or, I mean, it's a little uncomfortable, but basically it's it's not the big deal people are making out of it. But mm-hmm. what it is, is an outward acknowledgement of the fact that my life has changed in ways that I never would have imagined. Mm-hmm. And yeah. people really struggle with that. I've had some of the strangest conversations with people. We had an episode a, a bit back where I shared that one of my friends said that she didn't, telling her boss that she hadn't been vaccinated yet when she had been because she didn't want to go back to work yet in the office. And I've also had some friends who've really struggled with wanting to even leave the house, even though there's probably times where it's probably okay, but it's it's a struggle for people. I, I wonder if that has something to do with some of these, I don't know if these are pop culture terms or these are actual psychological terms. You, Doug, you would have to tell me. Okay. Things like uh, cocooning yeah. or hypernesting. These are things I've only read about recently where people are trying to get control over their lives. So they just stay in one place and don't move. Yeah, I think those terms, at least the cocooning, started out from a different place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was really intended to take a look at the depersonalization of society. And these are ways that people can regain a sense of intimacy and closeness and feel less oppressed by the forces of society around you. I think that we have probably exceeded all of our tolerance for cocooning at this point. <laughs> you know what even the introverts kind of burned out about August. <laughs> In, in fairness, I think that the people who are who really struggle with feelings of isolation and feeling cut off from others have found this a hellish year. Yeah. And for people who are naturally somewhat introverted or or uh, don't have the same kind of need for social connection that somebody else does, for those folks, hmm. this this year's kind of in some cases been sort of a relief that oh great I don't mm-hmm. have to go to the office I can just work home get it done and and just be be on my own. And for some people that's been great. But frankly, for those people that I am close to who who kind of tilt in that direction, they're done. I mean, Mm -hmm. they really have a a need for contact. One of the people I love most in my life had a birthday last May and she said, you know, I don't need anything. I just want a hug. 
desperately. Mm. And, well, that's certainly understandable. You know, she didn't want a gift. She didn't want anything other than she just needed some physical contact. And people have really been struggling badly with that. Basic human need for for a hug. <laughs> that must be on Maslow's <laughs> thing somewhere, maybe at the bottom of that pyramid. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a foundational need. Yeah, yeah. 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 In the US, how do you see this going? Is it sort of a state-based recovery or is is the current administration doing something to get it back to normal nationally? How do you see it? First of all, I I, I think referring to it as, as a recovery plan is probably a, a bit of a misnomer, mm. simply because I think they are responding to social pressure of a variety of kinds and resolution of, of the disease is really not on the agenda for certainly at a state level. Uh, they're just dealing with whether or not there's going to be a uh, just an uprising on the part of people who feel too constrained. It's also becoming more and more complicated as the world is being somewhat more successful in dealing with it, both as a as a virus and and the the uh, vaccination program, as well as these tragic uh, upsurges uh, mm-hmm. all over the world. Because all of these decisions are supposed to be science based. So if it's science based in Australia, why is it so differently science based in <laughs> in New Zealand or in the United States or in the UK? It, yeah. It's just an incredibly difficult thing to parse. And the more difference there is between how place A and place B deals with it, the more it undermines the science theory behind what we're trying to accomplish. Mm. One of the things that sort of blows my mind is that when you enter the military, you are given a raft of inoculations. Uh, You are given mm. vaccines for stuff that is active in a part of the world you may never be deployed to. Yeah. But they aren't requiring people to take this vaccine. Oh. In the military. Yeah. As, as a group, Marines are highly resistant to taking this vaccine. I don't understand it. No, that's particularly interesting because one of the things I was trying to get at when I was talking to my dad was what, why now? Like what, like a lot of us all already have tons of vaccines in us, right? Right. It is, it's not like this is the first vaccine you're ever getting. You've already got probably the MMR and you've probably got polio and you probably, you know, there's probably a bunch of vaccines you already have in your body. And, and I, I realize a huge part of this is political, but it can't entirely be political. I mean, it's it, there's no way. Well, and I don't even understand that. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I know, I know, but that part doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> But but often there's a lot of things that are political these days that never used to be political issues, mm. right? I mean, so I mean that's part of the the worry is that you can politicize anything if you really want to, sure. right? I can just say, you know what, uh, people who are followers of this show should not do X, and if you're really into you know, the belief system you just decide to follow. I heard some crazy stuff coming out of Tucker Carlson's mouth the other day. <laughs> <laughs> He actually said, if you see someone whose child has a mask on, you should call the police because that's child abuse. Right. Mm. Yeah, okay. So you guys saw more of it than I did. Yeah. So that, there you go. No, I, I was kind of curious to know, in the field of psychology, there's psychology, right? There must be an overlay, though, of like country-specific tendencies. So there's a general sense of human psychology and human behavior, but then there's the filter through different countries and their experiences of, and, and, and how we've been raised. It has to. Certainly the, the uh, culture of any particular community is going to shape how news like this, disruptive as it is, mm. is going to be received. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the real struggles, at least for America. You know, it's e- 
cross-cultural mental health issues are, are very interesting because uh, if you're going to be dealing with somebody from Australia, even in the United States, mm-hmm. say you move back to the States and, and uh, a psychologist is uh, asked to talk with you about something, they have to understand that you were raised in a cultural ethos that is simply different than ours. Mm-hmm. And, and what's important to you and the values that you bring to it are, are urgently needed. Mm-hmm. Or the understanding of that is urgently necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're all so different. Our expectations of what life is going to offer us and the definition of, or the, the dimensions of happiness are, mm-hmm. are different from country yeah. to country. And there is something about every country that at, at moments of crisis, you're going to see evidence of the very best and the very worst of those cultural inclinations. Mm. America is, you know, we are at least characterized as having this urgent sense of, of independence and standing up against uh, any instruction to do anything is going to get pushback from an American. Well, that's because that's what happens, Doug. Well, <laughs> and, and it's sometimes unwitting. I'll give you an yeah, example. Sure, sure. I was uh, I, I landed in Heathrow Airport a couple of years ago for a vacation, and there was a sign on this on the wall that said, "Please be prepared to, to show any liquids you have in your carry-on luggage." And I went, "Okay." And so uh, the suitcase went through, and you know we all speak English. The, the words mean the same to me as it does to the to the security people there. But he said, uh, "And what about? Do you have any liquids?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Where are they?" And I said, "Well, they're in the suitcase." And he said. I need to see them. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I was prepared to show them to you, but I didn't know if, if you really wanted to see them because the sign says, be prepared. I said, I'm prepared. And he said, we were being polite. And I went, oh, <laughs> that never occurred to me. <laughs> no, that's such a fantastic way to put this. That, that is so good. Be prepared. He's like, no, listen, it really means just get ready to cough it up. You probably thought with your training, you're like, that's a massive aggressive, my man. No, I, I think I made it stay because he really understood that I was perfectly willing to cooperate. I just didn't know what the instruction was. That's so good. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go to your Japanese knowledge, Jason. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of like the, um, the Japanese no, which comes out as, we'll give this some careful consideration, which inherently means no. When you you learn Japanese, the first thing you learn is never say no. You pause, you suck air in, you go, hmm. And then as you hear that in your mind as a Westerner, you should think, we're not getting the deal done. <laughs> no deal today, folks. No deal. And also the other great tip is they will have 15 people in the meeting and the chatty Cathy's at the front will be driving the meeting. They'll be in their mid-20s. It's the old dude up the back. He's like 65. He's the CEO. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he won't yeah. say a word. It's so much fun. Let me take a circle back on this, Doug. Yeah. The thing that I really want to know about social life transitioning back. I'm thinking of some of these things I've heard and read where people are like, I really want to get out and see my friends, but I don't even know how to do this. Like I'm just, I don't know how to, I forgot how to be social in physical presence with people. I don't know what to do, you know? So there's this delay, you know, you might even be vaccinated and you just don't know how to reintegrate. You've built a new set of habits Mm. and it's weird. Some people just have a lot of anxiety about it. Oh, without a doubt. And and I think one of the things we're having to unlearn is this panic response that we've been carrying around inside us for the last year. 
it's it's a very difficult thing. People who normally felt in control of their lives were no longer in control of their lives. Mm-hmm. The, and control of your life in America means basically doing any doggone thing you want. It, it isn't something like, uh, I mean, absolutely any restriction on your conduct is something that feels alien and, and uh, yeah. like you're being put upon in the United States. So it, it becomes a very uncomfortable situation very quickly. And people, I mean, I remember at the day, a couple of weeks after I got my first vaccine, I'd been going to the grocery store and, and picking stuff up from restaurants and stuff like that. I wasn't isolating myself the way some folks have. But the, the first time I went out after the vaccine, I remember looking at, across the entrance, the doorway of a store, and I thought, wow, I suddenly was aware that I had been looking at other folks that I just saw in the community as the enemy, uh-huh. as a personal threat to me. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly with the vaccine on board, I thought, wow, I don't have to be defensive anymore, but I sure felt that feeling. So you felt anxiety, uh, chemicals in your body and all that. Absolutely. Wow. And I, I think people are struggling with not knowing how close we can be, how... And, and what that is supposed to be like. I think there's a, for those of us that have been pretty vigilant about wearing masks and maintaining social distancing, there's also a real concern about not wanting to freak anybody out. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. You want, you want everybody to be comfortable around everybody and you just don't know how far, you know, you don't know what the new social rules are. Yeah. Mm. We definitely had a weird thing of how do we greet each other? Like someone moves in for a handshake and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then you feel self-conscious, like really? But it was a whole conversation. Now that's completely gone now because we're completely back to normal. But there was definitely a except for that you can't leave. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, hey! But it's it, the greeting alone was just an interesting thing. I, I think one of the things that I used to uh, a conversation that I've had more than once with clinical patients back when I was practicing was helping them try to figure out what it is that is creating the this malaise or the the ennui or or whatever you might want to call it, um, that sort of stifles their happiness. Mm. And people Mm. have a really difficult time understanding what that might be. And Mm. for a lot of people, if they are depressed or they're angry and they just sort of kind of clamp down on those feelings because they're so unpleasant and they cause social problems and everything else under the sun. What I used to try to explain to them is, you know, you cannot selectively diminish the intensity of any particular feeling. It's not like you have, you know, a soundboard with a hundred different modulators. Mm. You've got one dimmer switch. Yeah. And if you need to crank down on unhappiness or anxiety or fearfulness or depression, you're dimming down everything. And that mm-hmm. includes joy and happiness and pleasure and everything else that you value in life. And that's of, fascinating. Like it all gets dimmed down. That's really interesting. So the, the joys are less joyful. The highs are less high. The absolutely. lows are less low. You yeah. have a very gray kind of view of life, right? Yeah. I, I recall uh, many years ago reading, and I wish I could remember the source, but this person defined uh, one aspect of depression or what type of depression as being the desire to desire. The, oh, the, geez. The whole spectrum of their emotional experience had been so dim down that they didn't even know what they wanted anymore. And what they really yeah. wanted was to want something enough to mobilize them and to energize them to go out into the world and, and be active. Is this connected <laughs> to that article I saw in the New York Times on languishing? Yeah. You know, I think we come up with new words for the same things uh, over and over again because yeah. it's time to speak to a new audience or a night, time to speak to a new context. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that languishing isn't a, a meaningful construct, but it's nothing new. Mm, right. Um, 
And it's basically this kind of sense of, well, what we used to call it was dysthymia, a kind of a low-grade depression that just takes away your joy of living. It takes away your inclination to extend yourself. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of do much more of that sort of extreme cocooning because you really don't know what you can count on the world for anymore. Right. So this term, which has got a new name, in, in uh, the 21st century is if I if I'm understanding you right it's something that affects people who aren't traditionally depressed because of life circumstances so, which would explain the 41 percent of people mm-hmm. reporting that they they just don't feel right I think that's true and I also think that you know people were surprised my god I don't feel this way this isn't the right. way I am yeah. this isn't my nature what what happened to me where am I yeah that's super discombobulating that's it you can't recognize yourself which is weird right, right. it's like wait I'm reacting to different things differently I'm not yeah this this notion of I'm losing my desire to desire which is fascinating so once you start lo- losing recognition of your own self that's that's a foundational problem right mm-hmm. that's like Whoa, absolutely what's happening to me right that's so interesting I just got a note from Netflix that I have just destroyed 75% of their catalog and I feel funny about it. <laughs> That's right. I've got no much to I can't watch anymore. I've emptied I've officially emptied Netflix. <laughs> I've gotten my money's worth, yeah. but I feel strange about it. We do ask our guests every time if there's a a myth they'd like to debunk and you're you're our second time guest, so you've debunked one for us already. Is there another myth you'd like to debunk? People have a sense of being alarmed when they encounter feelings of depression and anxiety. Mm. They may experience it at a different level or urgency than they have in the past. And frankly, some of it is this discombobulation you were talking about. Mm. It it be, For some people, is such an alien experience. They go, where did this come from? Mm. I'm not one of those people. Mm. I don't, this isn't the way I am. And, and you know, the, the, the problem is everybody, I mean, the vast majority of people, at least in the United States where the research was done, experience at least one period of major depression during the course of their lives. Mm. It's, hmm. It is a part of the human experience. Okay. And major depression is not this dysthymia that we're talking about with uh, languishing. It's something that really is debilitating. Mm. It, it interferes with your ability to function in the world. And even at that level, it's a common human experience. So I think one of the things that people need to wrap their heads around is shit happens happens right and so it's got to feel so good not having to worry about uh how to re-upping your your apa membership but it doesn't quite stop there is the thing Mm -hmm. it shit happens and we all make it through you know if you're you're really talking about the uh, the, an impending apocalypse which is what people experience when they're talking about covid19 and the social impairment that they feel as a result of it it's hard to maintain your perspective Mm -hmm. that this is actually something that's going to be over and mm-hmm. you you are still going to have people that you're close to. You're, you're, there are opportunities mm. in the future that you can't feel right now, but you remember them from before. Mm. And I think the solution to for a lot of the people is, is to do normal things. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do the big stuff, but you can do the normal stuff. You can plant a garden. You can play catch with your kids. You can go for walks with people in the neighborhood. You can adopt a, a stray dog. You, mm. All of these things, you know, in the United States, 
animal shelters have been absolutely empty. People have been desperate desperate to have something they can hug on. Yeah. Mammals, baby. Mammals. So, hey, this this reminds me of a story that is strangely something I thought was buried and never coming back. But here it is. Jason, you and I have a mutual acquaintance of Russian background. Oh, yeah. who, Who once told me, you know, the difference between the Americans and us is that you guys think you're entitled to happiness. Mm, that was a- And we understand correctly that life is half misery. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that was a tough You one. guys are shocked, shocked when life goes badly mm, for you. Right. And you know what Russians do when life goes badly? They shrug their shoulders. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's kind of true. It is. <laughs> I mean, we've we've got you know like the the pursuit of happiness is a part of our ethos. Mm. It's like written into our, yeah. our our code, you know. Well, it's it's become the entitlement to happiness. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, yes. It's such an interesting. And the reality, but I think it's an essential part of the American character that has brought about the very best in our society as well. Yes, it's just that you know the things that you love most about somebody, whether it's a, a culture or a person, are also the people the things that drive you crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. greatest strengths, greatest weaknesses. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's true. And that's, that's amazing. That's so good. So Doug, tell me this to anybody here. One of, so one of the great comments we got from your last episode were about some of your more prescriptive comments. So to anybody who is ha- trying to get a soft landing uh, into the new normal, what would you suggest they do to, uh, to take care of themselves and, and, and get a soft landing. I think that we need to imagine for a moment that even in these weird times, the people around us are a lot more like us than not like us. Mm-hmm. And so one one aspect of that can be if I'm feeling lonely or just urgently in need of some sort of, I, I need to laugh. I need to mm. spend time around somebody. I need to throw a baseball. I need to just go for a run. Whatever it may be that strikes mm-hmm. you as being of interest you got to know that the person living next door to you is going through their own version of Mm. the very same thing. Mm. Yeah. And don't be shy about reaching out to them because Mm. they are probably as stuck as you are. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. they're longing for connection. They're longing for laughter and joy and happiness. Mm. I mean, I think with people as stressed out and kind of semi-depressed as they are these days, if you're willing to make somebody laugh, you're going to be a popular person. Mm. Uh, That's true. (laughs) That's really true. There's a high demand for just the joy of connectedness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if 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 you're going to garden and you, for instance, here's an example. You like gardening. You've got a little garden at your house. Your neighbors also putter around in the garden. Why not call up one of your neighbors and say, let's work on your garden today and work on my garden tomorrow? Mm. You know, just a simple thing. And even in this kind of pointless pursuit of dead plants, you can still... Share it with somebody who just wants a little bit of connection. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. Think, I, I think that's available to all of us. Mm. And I think we are appreciated for, for what, we're, what we can do and what, what we're trying to do. Mm. Chris, one example of this is, is our mutual friend, Rita. Yeah. Who, yeah. Um, who decided uh, she moved to Salem, Oregon. Yeah. She's, uh, an hour, she's an hour south of me now. That's right. And she's living in this sort of middle class, working class neighborhood. And she decided to set up uh, one of those community libraries 
you know, the oh, little, yeah, little yeah, like yeah they're so popular here. Yeah. And then she realized, and, and it, it took off like gangbusters. And oh, then wow. she decided, well, I'm going to put out a food pantry. And she started doing a food pantry and it's gone like gangbusters. And now she's got a a library, a food pantry and a refrigerator uh, sitting out in front of her house. And everyone in the community knows her. She has gone Mm -hmm. from being the new kid on the block to being the most known person in Mm -hmm. her community just by being nice. And, and so, really, so this is probably a little more shocking to the Australians than it is to the American or, or to the Americans than it is to the Australians. But but or maybe I got that backwards. The, the, it's it is interesting though because we spend so much time being competitive and presuming that the the stranger is trying to take something from us or compromise our lives somehow. Or it's interesting when you just have mm-hmm. the first gesture forward, right? Yeah. yeah. I, just real quick story that this reminds me of is this one time I was ranting crazily after, after like trying to vent after this really, really bad day with a friend of mine in a, it was in a bar, it was a sports bar and somebody overheard me ranting kind of loud and they were just kind of like, Hey man, could you shut up or something like that? You know, cause the game was on and I said, Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I didn't realize I was gotten, I had gotten that loud. And he came over and the person across from me said, why are you apologizing to that jerk? What you should have just lit him up. I mean, he has no right to talk to you Mm -hmm. like that. It's a loud sports bar, you know? And I said, you know, I feel bad about it. I didn't know I was talking that loud. And, you know, he has a right to watch the game. And she looked at me and kind of shook her head Mm -hmm. and he's leaving and he leans over and he's, hey, man. And he offers me his hand. He goes, I I shouldn't have let you up like that. Mm -hmm. That's. I'm sorry. And it's just because I did the olive branch first, right? I mean, it's just, that's yeah. all it is. Instead of instead of escalating the damn thing, I said, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was doing that. I'm- what you did was you demonstrated uh, the best in all of, of humanity. By, yeah. You know, and so- on that one moment <laughs> in that yeah. one day. But I, I think you, now you're, you're, you're reducing the value of what you're saying by making damn a it. Doug, you're analyzing me now. <laughs> Doug's like, I didn't realize Chris couldn't take compliments. What's going on? We we are all just struggling to make the best sense of it we can. And suddenly that guy was confronted with a mirror. Mm, And he said, wow, I wish I was more like that guy Mm. in that moment. Mm. He doesn't know you, Chris. You you can let him live with his idealized vision of you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Hey, you know, Jason, you know what I think? What's that? I think Doug is a friend of the lab. Friend of the lab. It just means that some every once in a while, Doug, we're going to need to reach out to you and have you yeah. just, you know, come on. You know, uh, David Letterman had Tony Randall. He lived in the area, you know. Every once uh, in a while, he'd just say, Tony, could you come down to the show? Yeah, that's really cool. It was like, it wasn't, it was, it was different than a normal booking. It was somebody who's, who's like, you'll, you'll see them every once in a while on the show. They're friends. They're, 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 they're kind of a semi part of the show. Mm. It's kind of fun. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that our getting together is uh, uh, at such a distance, but yeah. uh, it's a yeah. lot of fun and I would be happy to be a friend of the show. Excellent. Okay. Well, with Jason's situation, he doesn't have much choice because he can't leave. <laughs> Well, really, what it comes down to is he can't, he can't come back. He can that's that's yeah. probably true. Actually, I don't know. Can you leave? Can you leave and not come back, or can you not even leave? He can't. I, you can't even get on a plane. I can't do anything. If I leave, I if I leave, I can't come home for at least three months, and then I've got to pay three thousand right. dollars to go in quarantine. At least you can get the mariachi band. Yeah, I can. Yes, pimp my quarantine. Well. 
with that, I want to thank you for your time, Doug. This has been awesome. It is really great to talk to you again. It's been too long, but you know, sooner than later, we'll actually be able to do something live. So I'm looking forward to that day. Likewise. Likewise. So good to see you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. My pleasure. Bye, Doug. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham Nye. Catch you next time.